cities. This is number six of seven, and it is entitled, Come Out of Her, My People. First, let us pray. Our Father, which art in heaven, in this sermon, as we contemplate the mighty wonders of a soon-finished work on earth, we plead for the Holy Spirit to mightily impress our hearts with the urgent need for individual preparation so that each of us may be ready to give the loud cry with divine power. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. The basis of our study is found in Scripture. Revelation 18, verses 2 and 4. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and is become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Let us begin <clears throat> by asking a question. What makes this mighty call possible to come out of Babylon? The answer is simple. The loud cry is made possible because God has shaken all the tares out of his true church so that now it is possible to anoint his people with the oil of the Holy Spirit during the latter rain. These two events make it possible that the cry that is to be given will be so powerful that Babylon is shaken to its very foundation. For the first time, many within Babylon will hear the call, Come out of her, my people. Almost overnight, the great city of Babylon will be turned into a vast valley of decision. But don't forget, at the same time, Jerusalem's inhabitants have also been shaken by persecution so that millions have left Jerusalem to join Babylon. This is a great exchange as thousands within Babylon leave to join God's remnant within Jerusalem. This loud cry to come out of Babylon is due to the fact that the minority who remain within Jerusalem is largely composed of lay people who have now become the ministers and the priests of Jerusalem, preaching with great power the latter rain. Let's read about this in God's Word. 
Isaiah 61, verse 6. But ye shall be named the priests of the Lord. Men shall call you the ministers of our God. These spirit-filled laypersons of God's remnant will again do the same mighty work of preparing a people, just as John the Baptist did in preparing a people for the first coming of Christ. <coughs> Isaiah predicted in Isaiah 41, 3 to 5, <coughs> the voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together, for the mouth of the Lord hath spoken it. God's humble laypersons will reveal the evils of pagan tradition and proclaim the mighty gospel so clearly that it cannot be denied. Isaiah said in Isaiah 62.10, Go through, go through the gates, prepare ye the way of the people, cast up, cast up the highway, gather out the stones, lift up a standard for the people. Thus, the errors and the sins of Babylon will be declared to all her inhabitants. In Great Controversy 606 are these words, Men of faith and prayer will be constrained to go forth with holy zeal, declaring the words which God gives them. And then notice, the sins of Babylon will be laid open. The fearful results of enforcing the observance of the church by civil authority, the inroads of spiritualism, the stealthy but rapid progress of the papal power will all be unmasked." Unquote. What a change this will be! I know, for I have found difficulty to preach the three angels' messages. Just listen to the results of this new power. Great Controversy 607. In amazement, <clears throat> they hear the testimony that Babylon is the church, fallen because of her errors and sins, because of her rejection of the truth sent to her from heaven. Now what great change will bring this about? The answer is found in the book of James. James 5, verse 7. Be patient, therefore, brethren, unto the coming of the Lord. Behold, the husbandman waiteth for the precious fruit of the earth, and hath long patience for it, until he receive the early and latter rain. So let's quickly look at this early rain 
for we have been told that all that took place during the early reign will again take place in the latter reign, only it will be more abundant. Where do we find such information? I read it in Christ Object Lessons 121. These scenes are to be repeated and with great power. The outpouring of the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost was the former rain, but the latter rain will be more abundant. So, let us look at the book of Acts and see what actually happened in the early reign of Pentecost. And we will discover what to expect in greater power under the latter reign of the loud cry. First, we found that the Holy Spirit was poured out at Pentecost, poured out on a very small minority. For we read in Acts, the first chapter, verses 13 and 14, that a small group of 120 were gathered in the upper room of a house, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Could it be that God will again bypass those who have accepted new ethology? Don't be surprised to see this happen when the latter rain comes with great power. Number two, the early rain did not add any new light to the gospel. You see, this small band of believers had a full knowledge of the gospel. They had lived with Christ. They had seen his miracles. They had been personally taught by the world's greatest teacher. They had witnessed the Lamb of God die on the cross for the sins of the world. They had personally buried Jesus in the tomb. And they had seen the risen Savior. They had watched as he had ascended into heaven. Oh, they had a full knowledge of the gospel. All they needed was the power of Pentecost. And so today, no other church in the world has been so blessed with such a full knowledge as found in God's holy word and the spirit of prophecy. There is absolutely no need for any new light. When the latter rain falls, it will be poured out upon a people who believe and openly preach the three angels' messages. Point number three. There was love and unity as the basis of their preparation for the early reign. In Acts 2 and verse 1, we find the believers having asked forgiveness of one another. They were totally united in love and in truth. Such will be the experience of the remnant when this mighty power comes. Number four, the gift of true tongues was given at Pentecost. There was no babbling, no incoherent speech. In Acts 2, verse 7 and 8, we read, they were all amazed and marveled, 
saying to one another, Behold, are not all these which speak Galileans? And how hear we every man in our own tongue, wherein we were born? You see, the Holy Spirit made it possible for persons to speak in any language necessary in order that the gospel could be given quickly. So, in our world today of hundreds of different languages and dialects, thousands will hear and be converted in a day through the gift of tongues. Just think what will happen when the latter rain comes with greater power than at Pentecost. Number five, the early rain brought such conviction and repentance that the people cried out, what must we do to be saved? So with the latter rain, the preaching will be given with a mighty appeal. Point number six, the early rain came in a time of financial crisis. Remember that lame man who sat at the gate of the temple pleading for money? Peter replied, Silver and gold have I none, but such as I give, I, but such as I have, I give thee. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Today, the nations of the world are entering a period in which they are all facing bankruptcy. For a time of trouble is coming such as never was. During this coming financial crisis, God's remnant will be totally dependent on God, not on monetary means. As the latter rain falls upon his church. Point number seven. The early rain was opposed by the temple leadership. So, in the latter rain, what can we expect? Will some oppose the loud cry and reject its straight testimony? I wonder. Remember, when the lame man who was healed, the leaders became so alarmed that the high priest called a special meeting and said, What shall we do to these men? In Acts 4.18, it says, They commanded them not to speak at all, nor teach in the name of Jesus. Point number eight. When the early rain fell, two opposing views developed among the people at large. Acts 5.16, we read, When those vexed with unclean spirits were healed, what do you suppose happened? The miracles were performed by both God's servants and Satan's servants. The worldly believed the demonic healings were of God, and the temple leadership declared God's miracles were of the devil. So the same will happen again. Number nine, in the early reign, the Holy Spirit would not tolerate sin. Ananias and Sapphira promised to sell some of their property and give all the money to the church. But later, 
they decided to keep part of it for themselves. When Peter met Ananias, he asked, Did you sell your property for so much? He answered, Yes, we did. Peter told him that he had lied to the Holy Spirit, and Ananias immediately fell over dead. When Sapphira, his wife, came in later, she was asked the same question. She too replied and lied to the Holy Spirit and died instantly. When the Holy Spirit of the latter rain comes, the saints will be living in total opposition to the new theology which teaches that saints will be sinning until Jesus comes. Number 10. Angels participated in the early rain, such as when the angel guided Philip to the Ethiopian. Let me read it. Acts 8, 26. And the angel of the Lord spake unto Philip, saying, Arise, and go toward the south unto the way that goeth down from Jerusalem unto Gaza, which is in the desert. Likewise, you read in the scripture that an angel told Cornelius to send for Peter. And Peter was commanded by an angel to go to Cornelius. You see, angels will again take part to finish the work quickly. Point 11. In the early rain, the dead were raised. When indispensable individuals are needed in God's work, such as Dorcas who died, God through Peter brought her back to life. I believe we shall see such miracles happen again when the latter rain is poured out. Point number 12. The last, in this is the last, in the early rain, God took a persecuting enemy, a deadly enemy of his church, such as Saul of Tarsus, and converted him to become a leader of his church. So likewise, during the latter rain, God will call some who have been our greatest enemies to be his leaders to finish the work. Now, as you think about all these various points, this will be a very exciting time when the gift of the Spirit will be displayed. Pretty Writings 138. We may look for the development of gifts in connection with the third angel's message, a message which will bring back the church to apostolic ground and make it indeed the light, not the darkness of the world. This is what we read in Joel 2, 28 and 29. It shall come to pass that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams. Young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants and upon the handmaids. In those days will I pour out my spirit. Speaking of this loud cry, we read in early writings 278, miracles, mighty miracles were wrought. 
The sick were healed. Signs and wonders followed the believers. And for our encouragement, God has revealed the results of the loud cry. Great Controversy 606. By these solemn warnings, the people will be stirred. Thousands upon thousands will listen who have never heard words like these. Unquote. So you can see that the converts to Jerusalem will exceed any statistics of baptisms ever previously recorded. In Bible Commentary 7, 979, large numbers will be admitted who in these last days hear the truth for the first time. You know, we should praise God for this. This is encouraging. For today, when we see so much apostasy and new theology creeping in, we sometimes are tempted to feel that there is little hope for the church. Ah, but let me tell you, God has other plans. The amazing results of the latter rain will be far greater than in the day of the apostles. Just listen to what happened back there at Pentecost. Volume 8, page 19. As they proclaimed the truth as it is in Jesus, hearts yielded to the power of the message. The church beheld converts flocking to her from all directions. Backsliders were reconverted. Sinners united with the Christians in seeking the pearl of great price. Those who had been the bitterest opponents of the gospel became its champions. Isn't that thrilling? I, I just cannot express the joy that I felt in my heart when I read the following found in early writings 277 and 279. Servants of God, endowed with power from on high, with their faces lighted up and shining with holy consecration, went forth to proclaim the message from heaven. Souls that were scattered all through their religious bodies answered the call and the precious were hurried out of the doomed churches as Lot was hurried out of Sodom before her destruction. God has revealed this day also to the prophet Isaiah. How beautiful is the language he uses to express what happens. Isaiah 6, verses 5 and on. The forces of the Gentiles shall come unto thee. The sons of strangers shall build up thy walls. Isn't that wonderful? But now, don't be perplexed when you think of large numbers coming out of the grossest errors of Babylon in fear that they might pollute Jerusalem. For praise his name, this will never happen again. The city of Jerusalem will never again be defiled. Isaiah 52, 1. Awake, awake. Put on thy strength, O Zion. For henceforth there shall no more come unto thee the uncircumcised and the unclean. 
in these last hours, the converts will be cleansed and purified and kept pure in Jesus. Now, why is this? These dear ones who have accepted this last urgent message come into the truth with a determination, for they know that the time is exceedingly short, and they have come at the risk of their lives, for they too have accepted the truth, knowing that they too will be persecuted. They will quickly grow into the image of Christ, whom they have chosen as their new master and king. We read of this in early writings 271, evil angels still press around them, but could have no power over them. Isn't that encouraging? Their spiritual accomplishments will be reached in a short time when compared with others who took years. This is further explained on page 67. Some of us have had time to get the truth and to advance step by step, and every step we have taken <clears throat> has given us strength to take the next. But now time is almost finished, and what we have been years learning, they will have to learn in a few months. You see, God is going to use the fierce and fiery persecutions to keep out anyone who works to defile his beautiful city. Now, those who come in during these last hours will replace those shaken out of the city of Jerusalem, even those who have been the bitterest opponents of the gospel, will take the place of those who have been our apparent champions. We read of this in Christ Object Lessons 236. Many will come from the grossest errors and sins and will take the place of others who have had opportunities and privileges but have not prized them. They will be accounted the chosen of God, elect, precious, and when Christ shall come into his kingdom, they will stand next to his throne. Now, isn't that amazing? What a wonderful God of love. The third angel's message will be presented with such clarity and power and conviction that all who refuse to accept will be guilty of knowingly rejecting truth. Every living soul will make an intelligent decision to flee from Babylon into Jerusalem or to remain and fight against God. Oh, this battle is going to be furious. It will grow in intensity as the message nears completion. In Great Controversy 607 are these words. As the controversy extends into new fields and the minds of the people are called to God's downtrodden law, Satan is astir. The power ascending the message will only madden those who oppose it. The clergy 
will put forth almost superhuman effort to shut out, to shut away the light, lest it should shine upon their flocks. By every means at their command, they will endeavor to suppress the discussion of these vital questions. But in spite of all this, in Review and Herald, May 27, 1890, are these words. All will come to a decision to declare holy for God or for Baal. In Desire of Ages 763, every character will be fully developed and all will show whether they have chosen the side of loyalty or that of rebellion. Then the end will come, unquote. Then and only then will God release this wicked world entirely into the control of Satan. So in this study, we have learned that the inhabitants of Jerusalem have been tested, the tares have all been shaken out of that city, the church has been purified and cleansed, <coughs> and all now within Jerusalem are guiltless before God. And we have also learned that the loud cry will shake Babylon so that the honest in heart have come out of Babylon and they have joined with God's remnant. Thus, the destiny of the entire world will have been determined. Now this brings us to a new chapter in this study. For now, Christ's work as an intercessor for man is finished. And he stands up, casting his censer down, and probation closes for the whole earth. Now it is said, as you read in Revelation 22:11, He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Now I want to talk about this experience. What does it mean for the saints to be holy? To live after probation closes. It is more serious than most of us realize. For inspiration tells us in Great Controversy 425, those who are living upon the earth when the intercession of Christ shall cease in the sanctuary above are to stand in the sight of a holy God without a mediator. Now this being so, what must be the spiritual condition of the saints? Great Controversy 425 says, their robes must be spotless. Their characters must be purified from sin by the blood of sprinkling. Through the grace of God and their own diligent effort, they must be conquerors in the battle with evil. Early Writings 71. I also saw that many do not realize 
what they must be in order to live in the sight of the Lord without a high priest in the sanctuary through the time of trouble. Those who receive the seal of the living God and are protected in the time of trouble must reflect the image of Jesus fully. Now these two quotations state that the saints who live through the time of trouble after probation closes must have spotless characters, characters which have been previously cleansed and purified from all sin. They must reflect the image of Jesus fully. Why? Consider, when Christ comes to this earth, when he came the first time, he lived his life without a mediator. And in the time of the end, we too shall have to live as he did, without a mediator. For when Christ steps out of the heavenly sanctuary, there will be no more forgiveness for sin. Today, many of God's remnant church members seem to be troubled as to why a sinless experience will be required of each. Why must their characters be purified, spotless, and sinless, and holy, and sealed? Well, let me tell you, this will be an absolute necessity. For sin cannot exist in the visible presence of God, because God's glory is to sin as a consuming fire when Christ nears the earth in his second coming. Remember how the Bible stated this in 2 Thessalonians 2.8? And then shall the wicked be revealed, whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So as Jesus nears the earth, his very presence will consume sinners. Therefore, all the sins of the living saints must be removed before he comes. In order for the last generation of living saints to be translated without experiencing death, they must come to the place by the power of God to live without sinning. It is one thing to die in Christ when Christ is mediating before the Father. But it is altogether another matter to stand before a holy God when he comes. Now James White clearly understood this, and I'm quoting from Life Sketches of James and Ellen White on page 431. When the mass of people think if a person is prepared to die, he is prepared for the coming of the Lord. They do not consider the difference between dying and standing alive to meet the Lord at his appearing. It is one thing to die in the Lord, to yield our spirits to him while he is pleading for us before the Father's throne, and quite a different thing to stand in the time of trouble after Jesus has ceased to plead in man's behalf.
after his priesthood is closed, and he is preparing to come to redeem his own and take vengeance on his foe. They who realize these things will bless heaven that means have been devised in the mercy of God for the perfecting of the saints. Now what is this means which James White is referring to? This is the sealing administered under the power of the latter rain. For they have experienced the joining of their bodies and minds with the divinity of Christ, the power of the Almighty, which alone can give them the power to overcome every sin and live on earth when Christ comes without sinning. Before any individual can see God and live in his presence, they must first have the seal of God in their forehead. All the dead will have this seal upon their resurrection, but the living must be prepared to receive it prior to the translation. The former rain has been sufficient down through the ages to prepare mankind to die, ready for the resurrection of the righteous. But when Christ comes, the living saints cannot be ready without the perfecting, sealing power of the latter rain. And let us also never forget that the robe of Christ's righteousness is always needed. We could never be entitled or fitted for heaven if we had to depend on our own achievements in sanctification. All of our efforts apart from Christ are as filthy rags. Down through the ages, Christ has given his robe to men to wear, and man can wear his robe providing the Savior is ever-present and pleading for him in the heavenly sanctuary. But when the work of the high priest is finished, must that robe be taken away, leaving man naked? No, never. God has devised a means. We are told of a time to come when Christ will remove the filthy garments that make it necessary for him to cover his people, he will clothe these people just as he will clothe the righteous dead who appear on the resurrection morning. This robe will be imparted to them for all eternity. How beautifully inspired writings describe this experience. Volume 5, page 472 and on. Zechariah's vision of Joshua and the angel applies with particular force to the experience of God's people, notice, in the closing up of the great day of atonement. As the people of God afflict their souls before him, pleading for purity of heart, the command is given, take away the filthy garments from them. And the encouraging words are spoken, behold, I have caused thine iniquity to pass from thee, and I will clothe thee with a change of raiment. The spotless robe of Christ's righteousness is placed upon the tried and the tempted. 
yet faithful children of God. The despised remnant are clothed in glorious apparel, nevermore to be defiled by the corruptions of the world. Their names are retained in the Lamb's Book of Life, enrolled among the faithful of all ages. They have resisted the wiles of the deceiver. They have not been turned from their loyalty by the dragon's roar. Now they are in entirely secure from the tempter's device. Their sins are transferred to the originator of sins. And the remnant are now only, not only pardoned and accepted, but honored. A fair mitre is set upon their heads. They are to be kings and priests unto God. While Satan was urging his accusations and seeking to destroy this company, holy angels unseen were passing to and fro placing upon them the seal of the living God. You know, we have been warned repeatedly not to wait for the latter rain to prepare us for the second coming of Christ. This is the false teaching of new theology that we can sin until Jesus comes. We will not be changed in the twinkling of an eye from living sinful lives to living sinless lives. Absolutely not. Never. The second coming of Christ will not change our moral position or our characters. I quote from volume 1, 705. Pride, self-love, selfishness, covetousness, love of the world, hatred, jealousy, evil surmisings, must all be subdued and sacrificed forever. When Christ shall appear, it will not be to correct these evils and then give a moral fitness for his coming. This preparation must all be made before he comes. None will be translated to heaven while their hearts are filled with the rubbish of earth. Every defect in the moral character <clears throat> must first be remedied. Every stain removed by the cleansing blood of Christ and all the unlovely, unlovable traits of character overcome." Unquote. Nothing could be more clearly stated. Let us remember that the standard for all ages both for the translated and the righteous dead, have been and will always be the same, perfect obedience to the revealed will of God. The third angel is calling us to prepare, not only for the former rain, but for the abundance of the latter rain. Not just preparation for death, but for translation. You see, extraordinary times requires extraordinary knowledge and living. Praise God. Praise his name. For he has devised the means to prepare the living saints that they shall be ready to meet him. 
face to face and yet endure his glory. The great love of God has made this possible. Oh, how our hearts should be stirred with an intense desire to strive to be among that blessed group. Let us pray. Dear God, we have surely been awakened to our desperate need to be ready for thy soon coming Savior. Help us, O God, to so daily live by thy power that we can become totally united with thy divinity so that our lives can be clothed with Christ's righteousness. This is our prayer. Amen. And now, may the message of Sonny Lou strengthen your resolve to live holy for Jesus. Oh